artist. And here we go. Thank you, Godwin. If you could please welcome Godwin. Thank you, Evelyn and, uh, and RMIT uh, Gallery and the staff and the organisers of this show. It's a little bizarre, this. I'm my, I'm my own interviewer. I maintain if you change the body language, you change the man. And uh, so I'm a changed man. It's not the real Godwin. Um, I, uh, look, I will, um, I will begin by... Uh, uh, talking about my own work in the uh, room behind me. The room is quite small. You may not fit in. I suggest you perhaps sit on the floor, uh, stand back, be careful of the two other works. That I, the work by Irene Barbaris on the wall here. I don't think you can injure the mic par on the end wall. But uh, could I invite you into this room? And I'll speak about the drawing. After perhaps 10 minutes, we'll exit and come into the main gallery. Claire, could you hold that for a minute? Don't press any button. I'm not. <laughs> oh, you're on iTunes. <laughs> that feels famous. Thanks. You're welcome. Uh, one of the um, one of the remarks uh, I will begin by contextualizing my work and uh, myself this exhibition contemporary Australian drawing uh, it's um, to a considerable extent it's artists of my generation there are a few younger artists like Jennifer Mills and others and there are some older artists but the majority of artists in this exhibition of my generation but I had a, an odd sensation when I first saw the show. Enjoyed, uh, I have enjoyed the company of these artists, but it doesn't quite look like my generation as I remembered it, not my formative generation. Uh, my formative decade, really, well, was perhaps my teen years, but, um, but I think as a professional artist, I became formed during my 20s. My 20s were the 1970s. And the 1970s did not look like that room. There's perhaps there are one or two works in that room that, that are reminiscent of the nature of the 70s as I remember them in visual art in Australia. And one would be uh, Alan Mittelman, one of the smallest works in the show next door. Alan Mittelman is uh, an abstract painter. He's really a minimalist, although his work is very finely worked. <coughs> Growing up, as an art student and then a young artist in the 1970s, I was really situated within modernism. And modernism tended to be, <coughs> at that point, had run an extraordinary history and brought us to a, a point where imagery became almost outlawed from the canvas or from the paper. Um, imagery became minimal. Imagery went off the off the paper, went onto the walls and onto the floor. It made artists like Mike Parr on the end wall here, who is primarily a performance artist, an artist like Alan Mittelman, who is uh, who I think situates himself within minimalism, and 
and a tradition of, uh, of a harder edge abstraction and a soft edge abstraction that's continued in younger artists like Wilma Tobacco, who's also in the room next door. The 1980s was quite a shift, uh, and within the Western world, a lot of figuration emerged. So by the time I was in my 30s, suddenly there was a tsunami of artists that had a figurative interest but that had not been the experience for the previous 10 years. And as a young artist, you'll find something quite similar. You'll find profoundly the fashion will change probably within a 10 or 15 year cycle. Um, and a lot of the drawing of the 1980s has been revived in a number of ways. But things had to be big and bloated in the 1980s. Bank accounts were bloated, shoulders were bloated, hair was bloated, big hair was big and shoulders. Lots of reverb and all instrumentation, overproduction, Duran Duran. It was all make it big and bloated. And some of the big was majestic. You can take your favourites. And some of the big was uh, ridiculous. And I was aware when I made large work that I could be making dinosaurs. And I made a lot of very large work. And the work behind me, in comparison with that work, is not particularly large. Mike made fairly large work. Perhaps the artist in the next room who in the 80s was making the hugest work is Bernard Sachs, who works at uh, the BCA and has a work on the far wall over here. Ber Bernard and I encountered in the mid-80s, and uh, I might mention this too. I, I discussed with Bernard an idea then, and we considered doing it. He did big um, panoramic filmic work, uh, drawings that were, were vast, horizontally huge, I tend to be doing ver vertically huge. I liked the cathedral gothic, and he liked the, uh, the, the, like the spread of the big cinematic screen. And because my work tends to be centrally oriented, I tend toward the center, and he tended toward the broad spectacle, the spatial spectacle. Um, we discussed the idea of embedding one of my drawings in one of his. So he did a, uh, it's a collaboration that never happened, but I've always liked the idea that he might do a huge drawing and leave a blank zone in the middle. And I did a big drawing with a center, refined center, but a blank exterior. And we swapped the drawings, and I complete the center of his, and he completes the surround of mine. Now, it never happened, it was a good idea, but it does accent the fact that's, that artists tend toward the center or tend outward. And those who tend outward often become uh, uh, spatial, color field, abstract expressionists, landscapists, decorative artists, installationists. And those who tend toward the centre will maybe tend to be uh, portraitists, figurative artists, classical artists, religious artists. Religious art always tends to the centre, at least in Western religion, but also in Asian religion. The icon, the icon that's in the middle, and the deity or whatever it might be. Um, so one sees those shifts through time. So this show next door uh, is really a, a generation that became uh, very conspicuous as a figurative generation, I'd say from the 80s and after. Uh, but it's, uh, it does not typify drawing prior to the 80s. Uh, it's not intended to. It's contemporary Australian drawing. I think it's contemporary because they're all still alive. Uh, <coughs> the Amago, this, this work here, uh, it's difficult for me to clarify the nature of my own work um, um, without mentioning a companion that I exhibited with during the 1970s, a, a companion artist called Warren Brenninger, 
Um, he and I actually initially uh, became conspicuous because of our photographic exhibitions, but he was a painter and sculptor, primarily a sculptor, and I had my deepest roots were in drawing. And uh, <coughs> so our photographic work was affected by the physicality of sculpture, the viscerality of sculpture, and the handmade nature of... Uh, of um, I always found drawing then and now, uh, sorry, photography then and now, too sterile. I still, uh, I like clarity and I, I do like precision in certain contexts, but I don't like sterility. There seems to be a mania for the morgue in contemporary uh, uh, art, certainly in contemporary television. Um, mm -hmm. Criminal intent or silent witness. Just it's uh, the morgue, even in kitchenware. It's, I think it's hard to set up a kitchen now without them getting onto stainless steel with blood troughs. The, the look is uh, it's a mortuary look, and I find a lot of contemporary digital photography has got the... She, there's something that's disappeared, chiaroscuro. It hardly, it's rare commodity uh, in contemporary photography. Uh, we like the sharp glare of uh, full illumination, most mobile photography is, uh, is very bright. The shaping of a face with tone is less common. We floodlight so much of our experience. Uh, and that kind of clarity and that kind of sterility, I'm not particularly fond of. I've, there are three things I treasure uh, as very personal aesthetics in my own work. One is what I call the aesthetic of obscurity. I find obscurity often far more poignant than clarity. Another is an aesthetic of damage. Just subtle injury nearly always beautifies uh, form. It seems to create a sense of history. Um, there's a third one in there, and it's very dear to me, but I've lost it for a minute, but uh, uh, I'll locate it. <laughs> I could make one up, but I'll, let it, I'll leave it lapse for a minute. Uh, um, it doesn't look like I have an aesthetic of obscurity, uh, perhaps on the basis of this, but... Uh, but the subtlety of, um, of an imagery that's fugitive is, is interesting to me. I mentioned my friend Warren Brenninger. Um, we had quite strong similarities. Alan McCulloch wrote us up in the Australian Encyclopedia of Art in an early entry, and the entries for Warren and the entry for me are almost identical. The phrasing is identical, but he swapped the names around because he couldn't separate us. We're a little, uh, kind of a little, sort of our own little version of Gilbert and George, or Lyndall Brown and Charles Green. And, uh, but we were different. Uh, Warren tended to work with the female. I tended to work with the male. Warren tended to colour. I tended to monochromatic and toward black and white. He tended to uh, uh, photography. I tended to drawing. He tended to the full face, and I tended to the profile. I like the way the profile sat in the flat plane of, of uh, modernist art. Modernist art is, um, uh, does not welcome depth. At least modernist art until the 1980s did not welcome depth. In fact, it uh, almost eliminated all strategies for creating the illusion of depth. And so the face occupies itself in deep space. It's forward in the jaw, forward in the pout of the mouth, forward in the nose, forward in the gaze, forward in the forehead whereas the face lies flat in two-dimensional space. That's why you slap the face, you don't slap the front of the face. It hurts too much if you slap the front of the face. 
can damage the eyes, but slap the side of the face, you, it, less damage. So the profile sits in flat space, like the sovereign on a, on a coin, which is never in full face. Um, so for a number of reasons, I worked with the profile for a long time. And then I found several years during the early 90s, I was just longing to work with the face. And I thought, I have to overturn modernism to do that. I've got to shake off deep space. And I also felt uh, um, a courtesy to my friend Warren. <coughs> the face was his domain. He had done a series called The Expulsion of Eve, in which he'd done, um, uh, he did several series of 33 so he did 99, he did three, and then he went on. But over a period of decades, he did multiple drawings of a female face in a state of ecstasy. And I thought, he is such a champion and such a, a fine artist of the face, I cannot go there. Uh, but eventually, I just began working with the face. And, uh, <coughs> and, and I made a drawing that I called Imago in 1998. Uh, look, I, was doing, I was, did faces, but I tend to obscure the eyes obscure the upper head so the head was kind of fragmentary it was rarely complete and I was afraid of the sentiment that might just hemorrhage from the eyes if I drew eyes so I obscured eyes but in 1998 I made a large it was larger than this a drawing I called it Imago Imago is a term that can really have two applications in biology it means an insect at its point of definitive and perfect flowering like a butterfly. So it goes from a worm, from a larvae, from a chrysalis to a larvae to a, to a butterfly. And that's the imago, when it opens up in its most beautiful form. In psychology, it means the image you carry around in your head of you. So it's the perfect image you carry. It's you as, at 32 if you're a bloke, you're at 26 if you're a woman, or whatever it is. You know. It's that image you carry in your head. Uh, that uh, that kind of that can relate to your state in terms of uh, I suppose it's more popularly understood in the context of anorexia nervosa as the image uh, a young woman or a man might have in his head of of whether he's big or fine or fine featured or whatever. So imago relates to this idea of the definitive perfected self. Uh, this is clearly not me. Neither is anyone specific. I might say the imagos for me were such a release, not only to work with the face, but I had for 20 years, with every major drawing, I drew the entire anatomy of the subject. It was quite a complex process, even with huge drawings. So I'd draw the entire anatomy, and then I'd cover the whole anatomy with layers of chinograph. Um, and, uh, but, and I used the anatomy on the profile and through the body, but I never used the anatomy in the full face. It was, which was intuitive smartness because the skull frontally viewed is hideous and the skull frontally used is such a cliché. Uh, it's the great cliché of the pirate flag. It's the great cliché of costume parties and, and uh, death metal rock bands. So the, um, the frontal face, I didn't, um, I didn't uh, make it skeletal. Uh, when I did the imagos, I actually allowed myself to be a minimalist abstraction with each one. So I know I'm using the terms lightly and with no reverence, but stuff it. You know, with, 
I, my work has often been dealt with over a period of 40 years with a lack of reverence. <coughs> so it's a two-way street, this. But when I began these works, I, I actually just began with an ovoid, drawing no model and no photograph. I just drew an ovoid uh, in graphite pencil and then just filled it in with several days of dense China graph drawing, patching, if you like. So, and if you know China graph pencil, it's a very waxy pencil, and it builds up like porcelain. So I'd have just a big white disc. And I might say all my works for their darkness are actually drawn in white. Uh, I draw the flesh in white. I almost never use a black pencil. Uh, but I draw an entire image in white China graph, and then I cover it in crushed pastel and dust, and then I clean it. That's basically the process. So this is a white disc clean, uh, covered in dust and charcoal. and uh, No charcoal, actually. There's no charcoal in it. It's crushed pastel, sometimes colours. And then I cl clean, clean it and redraw into it. So the big disc of white is done, and it'll take several days to do it. It's great doing it. Don't have to think too much. Just go deeply into the work, get the music right, if, uh, and then... And then structure a face, and it's schematic. I, I confess it's schematic, but the face is schematic. Uh, nature has not varied the shape very much, and when n nature varies the design of the face, uh, people become hospitalised and uh, and put into in institutions. So the schema of the face, the one nose, the symmetry, the two eyes, the single mouth, you, the cyclops is not really. You know, we, we tend to stay with the formula, the scheme of the face. <clears throat> so I work with that. But then the real difficulty is, and I have a difficulty with this, and I'm sure every artist has a similar difficulty. The difficulty is to head for your objective, but not to fall into the, the many pitfalls that are there. How do you create a universal image of the face without it looking like a storeroom mannequin or, uh, or, um, uh, a digitalized face or a uh, cosmetically reconstructed face. So how do I make it look true and universal and how to make it suggest individuality without coming up with personality types? Uh, and how do I work with a particular face without it looking like I'm doing anthropological studies? Now I've done a Japanese. Now I'm doing a, an Islander. Now I'm doing a, a Caucasian face and now I'm doing an Arab. It's not about anthropology and it's not about individual portraiture. So so what am I trying to do? I'm actually not quite sure what I'm trying to do. But I'm dealing, I think, with the most uh, uh, visually riveting image that we work with. And whether you're an artist or not, you look at faces. In conversation, you look at faces. On television, you don't turn on television hoping to God they show you the shoes. Or the knees. Give us the elbows. We or the. Can we see more of the floor? We tend to look at faces. It's faces we glance at and then glance away. So I already am convinced that our embedded uh, <coughs> preoccupation is with the face. Uh, but how do I work through its ordinariness and its commonplaceness? Maybe it's to do with my age or my circumstance. But I'm overwhelmed currently. By and a, a student told me very kindly and very gently yesterday that uh, he thought I was losing the plot in a recent in a recent presentation when I became overheated about this. But um, 
in in the studio, I think I am a different creature. But in ordinary circumstance, I, I'm pretty ordinary. But uh, the um, I am currently quite preoccupied by the contempt we have for extraordinary things that are familiar to us. Uh, and uh, fellow artists, like Leslie Duxbury comes to mind, who uh, who sees the sky, who sees the clouds, and who sees the climate. And last night there was a magnificent sky across my suburb, and I looked at it and was uh, I just thought how blind I am to the sky, to the night sky, to the starry sky. And Leslie Duxbury is not. And uh, how we close down our reception to even just the phenomenon of the blue sky. And But we do this with the face. And I think um, a lot of artists, and I hope, hope not young artists, but a lot of people can think, no, this is a well-plowed field. Everyone has visited the face, every artist, every culture. Every part of our culture, advertising's done it. Um, um, everyone's been to the face. There is nothing new you can say about the face. Uh, somehow you have to find it as an artist. You've got to find what is new in this symbol that I'm looking at, whether it be the vertical, the horizontal, or something as complex as a face. So the Imago, when I did it first, I just thought I was doing one. And then I just had to do another. Sometimes I wait a year and just think, no, I've finished that, and then I think, I've got to do it again. I'm actually caught in a whirlpool, uh, and I want to exit. I'm at a point where I want to exit from working with these, but... Uh, it's actually quite tricky uh, to talk about the show. I... Uh, um, I... I feel I have to sort of change identity a little bit. There's, um, uh, I don't know if this is more accented than it is with other people, but I find um, with my own work, I often feel like I'm caught in a black hole, a high gravitational pull towards personal preoccupations. Um, and, uh, and when it comes to my own work, I'm sort of a kind of a fundamentalist. I kind of, uh, I, uh, the, I cannot escape the grip of my own preoccupation. When I step into a gallery, uh, I feel much more, it's the word Catholic, I sort of love it all. I want to kiss everybody, everyone's darling, and I love all the art. It's, uh, it's, it's a little bit, again, it, for me it's a little bit like a solar system. There's a big burning sun in the middle, and that's perhaps my ego. And uh, and then there's a whole ra and then branching out from that the whole range of and I know that's not the way it is, I know that's not the way it is in reality, but it feels like that. And uh, uh, I I, um, I won't go I won't pick favourites, but I'll just make just a few comments. Jenny Watson over here, uh, I re met her recently in the gallery. And we, I had a conversation. I said, Jenny, I've actually got drawings of you I did in 1970 uh, uh, when you were life modeling at the art school I was at uh, that I'd never given her. So I have known Jenny since uh, those very early days when she was an undergraduate student at the VCA at the National Gallery School. And, uh, um, and she was the most regular life model we had then. Uh, so I must dig them out at some point, and I promised her I'd give them to her. Um, 
Bernard Sachs, who's the artist I was referring to before, that uh, Bernard and I became aware of each other's work in the mid and late 1980s. If you haven't seen uh, a, a broad selection of Bernard's work, you must do so. His, those visual panoram panoramic works uh, of, um, of the earlier decades are quite pivotal and quite iconic images. I haven't talked to him about this and I don't know a lot about this work. The only thing in this work that is clearly identifiable to the Bernard Sachs of 20 years ago is this checkerboard edge where he uses the masking tape on the edge and perhaps the reference to uh, Germanic culture. But um, uh, Bernard was the first artist who gave me permission to use the word Gothic. We, uh, we were in a show, to get a small curated show together some years ago and in a conversation I said, oh, look, my fear is people are going to think it's a, we're completely Gothic, it's a revival of the Gothic. And he just said, oh, relax, what's wrong with Gothic? <laughs> and uh, suddenly I felt better. Uh, uh, it's funny how you can carry a great burden of, um, of, uh, of critique around with you and then find to other people it's inconsequential. I'd say that about Alan Middleman, who's got the little drawing uh, round the corner here. Um, uh, I uh, hope, hope these artists don't mind me making personal remarks like this, but I felt like I was, uh, an o I felt ostracized, but I think I was probably self-ostracized uh, during the 70s and uh, in the, into the uh, 80s. And I remember uh, in an exhibition in around about 1983, uh, several older generation artists who are abstractionists complimented me and it meant so much to me. I, as, a, as an observer of politics, I always love it when a, um, a member of parliament or whatever crosses the floor. I hate it that people think, uh, stubbornly stay with, uh, with an ideology even against all logic and all circumstance. And when a person who's left wing or right wing says on a matter of conscience I have to cross the floor I always think that's just except when it's a whole crowd of people and it's you're safe in a crowd but when an individual does it I think that's so courageous and when I it was into my mid 30s suddenly I found some of these artists who I thought would have no time for a figurative artist complimented me and interestingly uh, Alan Middleman's compliment was about the fineness and sensitivity to surface, which was something he shared. And uh, uh, so quite often you find that. The very artist that you think would, would condemn what you do uh, may not be like that. That's an advantage in living a little bit longer too. Um, I feel a, quite a strong sense of companionship with every, pretty well every artist in this room, or those ones I know personally. Um, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it might have been not like that. So you sort of sharpen yourself with your differences. And as you get older as an artist, you identify your samenesses. So things do change. Some things change. Maybe some things don't. Uh, isn't John Wolseley fantastic? Isn't Wilma a fabulous counterpoint? Um... Any, anyone want to announce a favourite? I do have a last, sorry. 
Go, go, Michael. I don't, I don't think it matters, but I'm interested that these, both the Bernard Sachs and the Wilma Tobacco, are called drawings. I mean, they could just as easily be. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, look, uh, Michael, I, uh, it, it, uh, I do agree with you to some extent. I, I, I won't, I've talked quite a, a lot lately about uh, our mode of identifying drawing. I think, um, uh, museums, I think, tend to equate drawing with a work on paper. So if it's a work on paper, it can be classified as a drawing. So we now find that drawing photographs printed on paper, inkjet prints on paper, uh, montages on paper can be classified as a drawing. And I think that's a museum category that's shunted down to uh, all other practices. So if it's on paper... But then artists like uh, Mike Parr, who's very much a performance artist, he does work on paper. But um, that one of the things that I appreciated as a... As a sorry, I'm changing your question a little bit. I'm jumping a bit. But um, uh, one of the unusual things or the ironies that I identified in when I was younger as an artist is that the conventional drawing that I was engaged in uh, which was figurative, was uh, at a remove from modernism, but the most radical aspect of modernism in the 70s was performance art, particularly brutal performance art. And there was blood spilling in performance art, if you remember, in the 70s. There was even performance art by amputation. And Mike Parr, if you don't know it, and only has one arm. And am I okay to say this? One of his early performances... And I don't actually, I might even question the morality of this. He stuffed meat up his sleeve with an artificial hand and in front of uh, an audience hacked his arm off. And people in the audience didn't know it wasn't his real arm. They didn't know he was a one-armed man. Um, uh, So performance art in the 70s was often very brutal. But it's often the performance artists who left a stain, a spill, a smudge, or a residue that they call drawing. So drawing became, drawing did have a connection with the most radical wing of modernist art in the 70s. Um, and, and, you know, as often it's said, drawing doesn't identify itself by medium. It's not, you know, it doesn't declare the medium. And, uh, and that gives it a great breadth of interpretation. Uh, but I, I do think, uh, I do think that drawing at some point engages um, uh, design and measurement, whether it's expressive design or intellectual design or, or whether it's textual. It, it identifies design uh, um, and in, in a manner that has a, has a measured intellectual aspect or intuitive either. It could be... But um, uh, Wilmer's is a work on paper, but in other respects, it, uh, it, it, it may, not, may or may not be identified as drawing. I think it's an important... Again, I think it's... Uh, uh, it could be an issue... I think it's, it's like that solar um, model I used that uh, a certain proximity to the centre of a definite gives something definition uh, a far remove from from that centre 
um, uh, uh, <coughs> I'm thinking of, again, Mercury, Venus, Earth, right out to Neptune, Pluto, at a certain distance, the gravitational hold no longer holds sway. Um, and, uh, and maybe definition is lost uh, as a drawing. It becomes another mode of practice. This... Uh, uh, in a general sense, I think both of these exhibitions, the Constellation Show Next Door and this one, tend to conventionality. Um, whether you regard that as a critical remark or, uh, or a complimentary remark. Any other remarks about that? I might be losing my way, everybody. The further I get away from my own ego... The, uh, less, the less reliable I am. So uh, I think we've also let Godwin um, run thanks, over time. And uh, if there's one last question or not, then um, I'd like uh, you to all um, thank Godwin. Uh, applause for the digital resource. <laughs> Heroic crusader in the 1970s who worked within a within a, um, a particular mode. Uh, Pam Hallander was a more courageous artist than I was, and uh, certainly a courageous teacher. Um, sh- she was the most prominent, quietly prominent um, teacher of uh, constructive drawing, and uh, uh, she was working at Paran during the 70s. And um, there are so many contemporary artists of about my age who owe a lot to Pam Hallandale for her pedagogy and for her teaching. There'll be people in here who know her well. Lots of people raise their hats to her. Uh, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but she's a fantastic woman to meet. She is so small, but she's so dynamic. She's very, very petite, and she's must be close to 80. Um, and, uh, and she won the Nobel Prize this year uh, and uh, I had the pleasure of introducing Virginia Grayson who did the work over here to Pam Hallandale which was a hilarious sight because Ginny's this high and Pam's this high <laughs> and Ginny bent all the way down to shake her hand and it looked kind of so crazy uh, but um, uh, so um, Pam is a bit of history uh, certainly part of the history of drawing in this country and uh, this exhibition does have a link, I believe, because there's a, a book being made around the uh, practitioners from this show, is that correct? Uh, by Janet McKenzie. And uh, her f- she made a volume called Contemporary Australian Drawing in 1984. Pam's work was on the cover of that work back then. And a number of these artists are also in that show, in that book and in the associated exhibitions then. So there is a sense of continuity of history here. Uh, So it's both contemporary and it's historical. Thanks very much, Evelyn. No worries. Thank you, Godwin.